Welcome to the Aquarius Podcast. I'm your host, Randy Reed. This episode of the Aquarius Podcast is sponsored by Awaza, the global leader in water gardening technology. Awaza is a relatively new entrant into the indoor aquatic space, and they're doing all us hobbies a favor by stepping into an already competitive market and raising the bar with excellent products that have innovative features. One of the coolest features to the Awaza line of power filters is seamless built-in heater integration. So if you've been looking for a way to step up your aquarium filtration and hide your heater without going the sump route, then I highly recommend you check out Awaza's Biomaster canister filters and BioPlus internal filters. That's Biomaster canister filters and BioPlus internal filters. Learn more by checking out awaza-livingwater.com. That's O-A-S-E-livingwater.com. I will also have this link in the show notes for quick access. Now, on to the interview. Today's date is Wednesday, January 30th, 2019. My guest today is Sherry Tanaglia. Sherry is a longtime hobbyist and has been an active member in several East Coast fish clubs. Sherry has competed in fancy guppy shows across the country and is working towards becoming an IFGA judge. For those that don't know, IFGA stands for the International Fancy Guppy Association. More recently, Sherry and a few other aquarists have started the Pennsylvania Guppy Club. So Sherry, welcome to the Aquarist Podcast. Hello, how are you doing? I'm doing very well. How about yourself? I'm doing well. Just <laughs> you're gonna have to edit that out. No, I don't know what no, to say. I'm, no, I'm leaving that in. <laughs> that this is totally staying in the episode. So let me so let me break the ice for you, Sherry. How is the uh, how's the weather in Pennsylvania right now? Is it is it, it polar vortex? It is. It is cold. Um, while we were talking earlier, I've already gotten the text message that school is delayed. We are starting two hours late for the kids, and I am going in an hour late, so all is well. Oh, nice. And so that's kind of a cool little segue into, uh, so before we jump into your origin story, one thing I want to bring up is that you are a biology teacher, and you teach, is it is it high school, or what, what grade do you teach? I have been a high school teacher for the last 12 years. Before that, I was a middle school teacher for 10 years, so. You are a, you are a brave soul. You're a brave soul. Thank you for your service in dealing with those <laughs> teenagers. Oh, it's fun. It's fun. <laughs> and, and so one of the things that uh, we had talked about in kind of this pre-interview section of the show uh, before we start recording is that you do something called Trout in the Classroom. So can you explain what that is? Oh, Trout in the Classroom is an awesome program. Um, I'm here in Pennsylvania, so I work with both Pennsylvania Fish and Boat Commission and since I'm in Bucks County, I also work with the Bucks County Trout Unlimited. And between those two organizations, they help support us having trout in our classroom, hence the name. But um, I've been working on with this program for the past 12 years. And the first year I was involved in the program, I received a grant to get all of the equipment that I needed to be able to raise trout in my classroom. That included me getting a tank and filter, um, hood, lights, a chiller. Um, that's the most important part of being able to keep trout inside of your classroom because the trout have to be kept well below 60 degrees. Um, they prefer to be around 55 degrees. And every year the Fish and Boat Commission send me out a box of eggs. Um, this started, like I said, I've been doing it for about 12 years. And at that time, there were only around, I think I was one of 13 classrooms in Pennsylvania. This year, they sent out over 300 boxes of eggs to classrooms across the state. And this all happens in the beginning of November. And we're expected to release our trout sometime before the end of May. Oh, that's super cool. And so I've seen some videos of where they're doing this with salmon, where fish and wildlife will, um, they'll catch salmon as they're returning to a spawning ground. They will strip the eggs from the female. They'll then get the milts, I believe is the, the name from the males. They'll fertilize <laughs> the eggs. And so what you're receiving is basically, um, how far along in the process are those eggs? Like, do they already, have they already gone through an initial, um, filtering, if you will, for lack of a better, or a screening, if you will, for fungus eggs, or is that part of the experience for you in your classroom as well? Well, they go through what I think they call a hardening off period. They wait until they're old enough that it's easy to, better to handle them. Um, so what we get is the eyed egg. They're about a month old at that time, so they're really cute at that point. The eggs are um, about the size of what I would consider, like about a green pea, but they're a um, a peachy color that you can kind of see through and they're called eyed eggs because you can see the eyes and the spinal column through and we can 
pretty much watch them develop, though we aren't allowed to really look at them too much at that point. At that point, UV light can be harmful to them, so we only can look at them a few minutes at a time. Um, I keep the tank covered up at that point. Um, they are inside an egg with a yolk sac, so they get all of their nutrients from that yolk sac and they usually hatch within a couple of days of us receiving them. We, we receive them in a bag of water, just like you would get anything that you purchase at a fish store. They come to us on a UPS truck, which is kind of weird. Um, the faculty and students are usually pretty amazed that a box of eggs shows up and there's trout inside of there, but um, it works. It works for all of our classrooms. Within a few days, they do start usually hatching out, but we don't have to feed them for quite a while because the yolk is still attached to them, and they have to stay in the dark the entire time that that yolk is attached. In the wild, they'd be buried under rocks. The wild trout lay their eggs in a rocky nest that's called a red, but that rocky nest keeps them covered up from being exposed to light, so that's why I keep the tank covered up. But once the yolk sac is used up, then they start to swim up or come out of those rocks, and at that point, they're hungry, and that's where my trout are at this point. Um, they're about an inch long at this point and starting to grow kind of quickly. They'll get to be what I would call a fingerling, which a fingerling is about the size of your finger. And that'll happen sometime around April or May. And that's the time that we release them. It isn't a stocking program, but it's a program to expose the kids to what native fish are like and to let them know what the ideal conditions are for fish in the area. A lot of them don't get the chance to see native fish, a lot of them don't go fishing, a lot of them don't know what wild fish need in order to be healthy. So while we're not trying to stock the local waterways, we are trying to foster a nice love of nature in the students and hope that they want to try to preserve what's out there and hope they start to like fish. And I think the kids do like fish because they have fish in the classroom. And yeah, and it's growing. Yeah, that's awesome. That is such. That sounds like such a cool program. And I wish that uh, you know I would have had an experience like that as as a kid. So the aquarist in me, I want to know when you get the eggs. So you know, we know with African cichlid mouth brooders, you know, we use egg tumblers and other huh? things to simulate that kind of action. Are you able to just sprinkle these eggs on the bottom of the tank and then keep it dark, and that's sufficient until the <laughs> eggs hatch? Well, this year we had a little accident and the eggs went to the bottom of the tank and I think that's why we lost a lot of them. This year we didn't do nearly as well with the trout as I'd like to. Um, normally, we keep them in a little box, um, like a little breeder box closer to the surface. Um, and that mainly, like we don't do any tumbling with them and if we lose eggs, it's usually because they do develop a fungus on them. So we probably would be better off with some kind of tumbling situation. And maybe I'll look into that in the future. Um, they don't supply us with tumblers and no one's ever really brought it up. But um, I try to keep them aerated just with like, I, I do have the chiller running and there's a lot of air that comes out of the tubing from that and I try to direct that onto the bottom of the basket. I also have like air pumps going because like they do like to have a lot of oxygen in the water. So I try to keep the air circulating around them, but they still seem to be pretty susceptible to the fungus. Like you said, like in the beginning about waiting for them not to be susceptible to fungus and when we get them, we get a huge number of them right away, and a lot of them already have succumbed to fungus on the trip to us. Oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah. Uh -huh. it's Is there? Do you ever experiment with like methylene blue or anything like that to to help keep the fungus off of them or to to prevent it? I haven't, and I think in the future I might ask them if I can. But they're they're kind of picky about what we to do that way. But this year I had more fungus issues than I ever have in the past. And I think a lot of it is like the warming up on their way to us. 
I'm, I'm further away from the hatchery than most classrooms are. The hatchery's in the middle of the state, and I'm on the far eastern side, so it takes longer for the eggs to get to me than it does to most. Most of the schools are pretty close to the hatchery, I believe. Oh, interesting. Would they, would they let you ever show up with like a Yeti cooler full of ice and pick them up yourself to, to maintain I that cooler temperature? I did. One year, um, one year I was very lucky. Um, I took a sabbatical two years ago. But um, the year that I took a sabbatical, I got to go out there for the egg packing day. And on the egg packing day, I brought things back for people. And that was awesome um, because I get my delivery like two days instead of one day because of being so far away. But the people who get them sooner, I think, have more success. Oh, well, that, that's very cool to hear, though, that you were able to pick it up one time. And, uh, yeah, maybe maybe in the future they'll let you pick it up again. Uh, what? So I guess my last question around uh, Trout in the Classroom, super cool program. If anybody listening to this, if they're if they're kids, oh. if you have grade school kids or high school kids. Go to the website and look it up. Yeah. And it's just a PA program. Almost every state in the country has it. And you mentioned the salmon in the classroom. In the western states, they do salmon in the classroom. So they could just do a Google search for like the trout in the classroom or incorporate their home state into that. They also have other things like the, the, each state has their own like big curriculum binder to go along with it. This is a program that I've seen it work from early elementary school all the way up through high school. There's a lot that you can do. There's things that can happen in your science classroom or in your art classroom. It could be in a interdisciplinary there. There's a lot that you could do. And um, they do involve like the like. It's always with the fish and boat commission, pretty much. So they really would like to see the fishing aspect involved too, which is kind of cool, also. But um, it gives you a chance to have a nice fish tank in your room, and it, it's fun. Um, arts and crafts wise, I got to make my first quilt. We um, the kids all made quilt squares, and we sent them out to classrooms all across the country and they sent us back quilt squares and I put them all together and it was fun. Lots that we could do. Oh, very nice. And so before we pivot away from the native fish and start talking about the tropical variety, what size tank are you, are you doing this all in? Um, smaller than you would think. My tank was a 50, is a 55 for the trout. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, I mean, you're still at least, you're, you're getting the length for the for the trout because I, I guess I'm picturing in my head that they're just kind of head pointed in the current and swimming so like they need more length as opposed to that that uh, back to front depth yeah hmm. yeah, yeah very and cool. they're not that big when we get like when we release them like I said they only make it to about three inches before we release um, some people only keep them around for a couple of months everybody's in a different situation I uh, I have to drive about an hour to find a decent stream to release them in. They're very picky about where we're actually allowed to let them go. But um, some people have schools that they have a beautiful trout stream right behind their school. And others, because I live in a more suburban area, I have to drive pretty far to get to a appropriate place to let them go. But um, some people keep, like I know I've kept them to the very end of the time that they'll let me keep them because we have to have a special permit. Normally you're not allowed to have any more than in Pennsylvania, five trout at one time. And I've had over a hundred at one time, so, but I have a special permit for it. Um, so in my 55 gallon tank, I probably shouldn't keep them all that long. Um, so some people only keep their trout from like November to maybe February and let them go when they're really tiny. Um, where I've kept the mine all the way up to the very, very end of May. But, um, well, sure. It, it sounds like you're doing an awesome work with that. And especially the fact that, you know, what you alluded to, um, helping the kids develop this appreciation for nature. And then the fact that you said that you're in a suburban area where you kind of have to drive a bit to actually get to a decent stream. So, you know, that's kind of, you know, amplifying the effect that you're introducing kids in an area that would probably, they don't even have, the advantage of just going in their backyard and having a trout stream or in their local area. So, you know, kudos to you on that. And I think that's really awesome. Yeah, it's fun. It's fun. I, I love having fish. I think every classroom should have a fish tank. There's a good excuse to have a fish tank in your room for every subject. Yeah, I, w I won't argue with that. And so now let's pivot towards Sherry's origin story. So, you know, jumping back in the time machine, how did you get started keeping tropical fish? Um, well, it was those streams and backyards. It's, um, I lived in a neighborhood that 
had small streams and I was always down at the creek catching things and bringing them home. My mom must have been a saint letting me. Well, I think she did that too. But um, I was always bringing home critters and keeping them in jars. And then I found a couple larger containers, but I was bringing home the native fish and the crayfish and snakes and things like that. But um, then I found a slightly larger tank at a yard sale and was keeping fish there. And that was probably in my before I was a teenager. And that lasted all through my teens. When I was in my 20s, I still had the 20 high that I had at the yard sale and somehow talked a brother-in-law into a 100-gallon tank, maybe. It was, it was probably 100 to 120. And I was keeping Africans, not Africans, I've never really had African cichlids, South American cichlids, um, big community tank and love them. Oh, very nice. Yeah, it's, I, I really love things like the fire mouse and Jack Dempsey's and convicts. I know nobody loves convicts, but I, I loved the convicts. They were such good parents and they all... Well, well, convicts are kind of like the, they're the cichlid version of a guppy, right? As far as, you know, you get a male, female together, you're pretty much going to have babies. So, you know, one of the the secret formulas, right, of getting people addicted into the hobby or really sparking that imagine or that that love for fish is having, you know, the the spawning activity, the breeding, the babies. Um, So, hey, there's nothing wrong with convicts. And when they can defend their babies against things like Jack Dempsey's and fire mouse and stuff like that. It's like when they could raise young in a tank with monsters, it's like you got to respect them. It's like those are they, – they take care of their kids. They, they're good fish. They're good fish. But uh, I, I had those guys. It's like I had Oscars. It's like I, I was really into those South American fish when I was in my 20s. And then I don't know what happened. Like I, I still had those tanks around and then I – started liking other things too but um no don't get me wrong like i still you know people that listen to this show depending on how far back you've listened or the last time i've brought it up um you know i I do love oscars i've had a tank i've had a hundred gallon tank with two oscars in it and that was you know really one of my you know one of my favorite tanks that i look back on and i i definitely see in my future having an oscar tank again because it's such it's just such a cool fish i mean they're so they're so personable and they're so pretty so i'm I'm completely with you on that they have personality. They really do. It's like I love my Oscar was named Pig. I loved Pig. He um, and I swear they like almost trained themselves. I I was totally inspired by a dolphin show at one point. I like they, and I know we don't do dolphin shows anymore. But watching them jump up and catch their food, I thought my Oscar could learn to do the same thing. And that was back at a time that I had like the long fake nails, and they were always painted like bright colors and stuff like that and I would hold the goldfish over the tank in my long bright nails and my Oscar would jump out and catch goldfish with my fingers it, it was so funny but oh man you had, you had a trick a trick performing Oscar very nice name name Oscar. pig <laughs> name pig he would he would jump for goldfish nice and so yeah. and so then so now this kind of I don't want to call it an obsession but like this real you know deep experience and you know this deep passion for guppies so when did that happen well that was in my classroom also and it was another project I used to do a project called the bottle biology project and I love that project. You take two liter soda bottles and you cut them apart and you rearrange them so that you have a little teeny tiny aquarium on the bottom and you have a terrarium on the top. And if you picture a two liter soda bottle, that little tiny aquarium on the bottom is holding like a cup of water. So it is the tiniest of nano tanks ever. So when I would do this project with kids, like I would see some teachers who would like tell the kids that they could go out and buy whatever they want to stick in the bottom, which was horrible because, like, whatever you'd stick in there would die because they'd be putting goldfish in there. Or sometimes I'd see these big, beautiful fish come in and they just wouldn't make it more than a day or so. And it was horrible. So I would do this project, but I'd say, I'm going to give you everything that goes in the bottom of this bottle. And I thought about it, like, what would actually survive down there? So... When I thought about it, it's like feeder guppies. Feeder guppies are so tiny that they can live in like a cup of water. And I'd give them like a feeder guppy, like a 
couple little feeder guppies and a snail and a ghost shrimp and a little handful of plants and their bottle biology project would last forever down there and it's like at room temperature and it's just a cup of water but we would do water changes even though a lot of people wouldn't change anything down there and they just see what would happen but the kids would actually take care of their bottle and they had their little family of guppies because their little feeder guppies would reproduce and half the kids would take their bottles home and it would lead to them ending up getting fish tanks but the kids who wouldn't take their bottles home I ended up keeping these feeder guppies and the first year I did the project I had I bought hundreds of guppies, but after that, like I reclaimed the guppies that didn't go home and I kept them. And over the years, the guppies just got prettier and prettier. And after a while, then I started like looking into like, these are pretty fish. And then I started looking up guppies and then I found out that there were fancy guppies. And when I found out about fancy guppies, I got a little obsessed with them because this was like normally when I really get into animals I do get kind of obsessed and start collecting them and things like that and that's when my obsession switched to these fancy guppies that I found out about and now I collect fancy guppies so it all started with feeder guppies that got pretty and I started trying to collect feeder guppies and then I found out about the South Jersey guppy group that was the first guppy club that I encountered and that was I guess back in 2013 and ever since then the number of tanks that I had in my house slowly started to increase and now I have lots and I have lots of fish and guppies and nice so on the note of those wild guppies right so you said that you started to notice that they got prettier and prettier what were uh -huh. some of what were some of these traits that you started to see happen as as these you know generation after generation well, when you look at a feeder guppy, um, a lot of times, well, the females don't have a lot of color to them, but the males have little splashes of color. But the more you look at them, those little splashes of colors, there could be like turquoises and pinks and purples and reds. Um, there's almost always some black on there somewhere, but sometimes some greens. And some of them have more of each of those particular colors than others. Um, they also have variations in their fins, whether it's their dorsal fins, the one that's on the top, or their caudal fin, that's the tail fin. And like some of them, the fins are very large. Some of them, the fins are like a sword tail, whether it's a top sword or a bottom sword. Some of them might have more of a triangle shape to them. And I just noticed over time that more of my males had bigger fins and more colorful fins and if you start doing a little of what I'm going to call selective breeding you start taking out the less fancy males and only leave the fancier ones in there to reproduce with your females that just makes the process go even faster so instead of going to the fish store and picking up another 20 feeder guppies to make my group of guppies increase in numbers I would cultivate like what I was already keeping and pay attention to what males I let stay in the tank and females too but um they and the better you take care of them they also start looking better also so um over time my little group of guppies just kept getting nicer and nicer and nicer but um like I said I also then went to the guppy club and my feeder guppies that were starting to look really nice that's when I found out that they were never going to make it to actually being show guppies in a couple of years because it takes a long time to make a feeder guppy into a show guppy. Sure, sure. But that still sounds like such a really cool experience, though. Of, yeah. And it kind of makes me want to go and get some get some of these. You know, I actually I don't think any of our fish stores in the local area have feeder guppies and I, I would just assume a feeder guppy is just going to be a really really close relative to a, a wild guppy oh yeah and um i don't even know what a feeder guppy is anymore i when i look at feeder guppies um you find all sorts of things in them if you buy like i guess it all depends on the store that you go to but when you buy an assortment of feeder guppies 
I now see things in there because now I do keep endlers and I do keep wild guppies. When I look at a bag of what I see as feeder guppies, I see some in there that some people would call endlers and I see some in there that look a lot like my wild guppies. There's a lot of variation. Um, yeah, it makes you wonder. kind of makes me want to go back and trace, you know, and, and kind of dive into that. Like, where are these feeder guppies coming from? Like, how are they being collected? How are they being harvested? Is it just some, you know, is it just some local wholesaler that just has a few gigantic tubs that he just throws every random live bearer into and scoops, I I, scoops them out every once in a while? But yeah, I think it's pretty much the mutts from somebody's endlers and wild types all just being, because they all hybridize. Uh-huh. They all, I, th- I think they're just the bad. I think it's just the calls from somebody's wild type endler mixes. And I think they grow them out in ponds and they're just. Gotcha. That, that all makes sense. So let's pivot then from kind of the cull feeder guppies, you know, poor guys to like these really, you know, like the, the world of show guppies, right? So what are, what are some of the elements of, well, I guess, what were, what were your experiences going to your first fancy guppy show? Oh, well, your first fancy guppy show is kind of amazing. The first time you go to a fancy guppy show, you get to see guppies that you probably can't imagine guppies looking like this because in the hands of a fancy guppy breeder, guppies grow to sizes that most people just can't comprehend. It's like IFGA guppies grow really big and pretty it's like and i'm not quite there yet i'm working on it it takes many years though to become a really good guppy breeder i would consider myself a novice and i probably will be for a couple more years but i'm seriously working on it you have to be really good at well first of all growing brine shrimp um the live food makes a huge difference in raising guppies um, especially in the first couple of weeks of their life, you have to get them on a regimen of eating live food from the time that they are first born. And then the other thing goes back to that selective breeding. You have to be s- separating your babies so that your males and females are separated before the females are old enough to start reproducing. Because the first ones who are going to hit the females are the males who probably are not the ones you really want reproducing with them. So, at what like I guess what kind of time window do you have, right? So I've got I've got a couple tanks of guppies right now, and you know they're breeding like crazy, and there's there's all sorts of different ages of fry. Is it I, I guess the moment you start noticing that there's differences. Um, you can start seeing the sexual differences in the guppies. Like, do you have pretty much like a day or two before you need to, before those thing before those guppies need to be pulled or do you have yeah. maybe a week or what's the, what's the time window look like? You really should be separating them as soon as you could tell. And that, that's where it's difficult. That's where most of us don't do as well as the really elite breeders, the ones and I'm not quite there yet. I, I know I'll get there when I retire. <laughs> it's like, that's what right now I'm kind of busy. And I'm going to keep on trying and trying and trying. But it, it does take time. And it's because you have to separate. Colony breeding is not going to get you the very best of guppies. You can get some pretty nice guppies. But in order to get the very best, you have to separate your males from females. And that takes time. Um and you have to do it when they're young. It, and it's not good enough to just pull out what you think are your males. It, it's really probably best to pull out as soon as you see that it's a female, pull her out. Like, get the girls out of there and use your females. Like, Because the females are just as important as the males when it comes to your breeding, breeding program. You have to have good females. She's carrying half of the genetics there. But... um. You need, you need to be able to pick a mom who's able to carry that big tail. When it comes to the IFGA standards, um, most of the classes are still those big delta tails. So you need to have a good, strong fish that can carry the delta tail. 
Yeah, and on the note of the uh, the females, and you had talked about one of the things that you would notice going to your first guppy show was the size. And you know, I can I can I can share that experience firsthand. So you and I we actually met at Aquatic Experience, and you had your display set up for um, I think one of the guppy clubs you were representing, and you had the one tank of wild endlers, right? Or was it just wild guppies? No, I they were endlers. Okay. Uh, I had my black bar endlers, and they're. Some people think of them as being a separate species. Some people think of them as being a very close cousin. They do have a different species name, but um, they look almost identical to the wild guppy. But um, with selective breeding over the last 70 years, we now have the show guppy from those same genes. Yeah, and those in the show guppies that you had next to them in a separate tank, I was absolutely blown away at the size of the females. They but were like, they were huge, many times larger, many times larger. It, like, yeah, the, the endlers were fairly big, but um, they weren't as big as those as those females that you had. Those were, yeah, I they mean, were they were, monsters. yeah, they were they were monsters. So so let's say all right. So we've gotten you know we've gotten over the shell shock, or at least maybe we're more accommodated to seeing massive sized female guppies. What else could somebody, or what else did you notice from your uh, or experience at your first guppy show? Oh, just the number of fish entered in a show. It's like when we have a show, our um, the IFGA has. I think we have five shows scheduled this year. Our first show is going to be in April in Chicago. Um, let me look real real quickly. But um. We have one in April in Chicago. Our next one's going to be in May in Michigan. We have another one in June in St. Louis. Another one at the end of June in Utah. Another one in July, and I believe that one's in Tennessee. And then we have our annual. The annual is our largest one, and that's going to be, I'm not sure where in New England. I think it might be in Rhode Island or Connecticut. But, um, we have usually about six shows a year, and they the smallest of our shows have 400 entries. Our largest ones anymore have about 600 entries, and just seeing that many high-quality fish at one time is pretty cool. Um, we have 70 different classes of guppies, so you get to see a lot of different variety, and I just find them very enjoyable. Um, the more you go to them, the more you get to know the people who are entered. Uh, many of the people do come from across the country, so you get to meet a lot of the breeders. Though, if you can't actually attend the show, many of the fish do end up arriving in a box. We do mail our fish across the country to visit the shows, but it's just the number of guppies that end up being there. It's a huge number of them. Yeah, that sounds incredible. And do we typically have a lot of international entries into these U.S.-based shows, or is it are the rules are it strictly just U.S. entries? Um, we don't have as many international as the name would imply. <laughs> I know we are the International Fancy Guppy Association, but most of the entries are going to be from the United States. Occasionally, we do get something from outside of the U.S. We do have a couple clubs from outside of the United States, but usually the entries are from. Mm -hmm. and, and of those 70, you said 70 class categories, right? Yes. Are, are most of those color or tail or what, I guess, what, how are they broken up without diving into like each of the 70 categories? Okay. Well, I'm going to say that first of all, you can divide those classes in half for Half of them are going to be for single male guppies. And then the other half is for tank entries because the tank entries have to do with being able to match up your guppies because one of the things in the IFGA is for going for consistency that a breeder can breed the same type of guppy over and over again. So we do have the single class entries where you are just trying to get your very best in that class. So it's really only, I guess, around 35 different types of classes. Now, when you're looking in those classes, 
most of the classes are the delta-shaped tail. And when we're looking at that delta-shaped tail, then it's broken up into the different color classes. We have classes for the different solid colors. Um, I'm going just off of memory here. I'm not looking at something, but like solid red, solid black, green, blue. Then we have our half black classes, which many people also think of as being tuxedo. In the IFGA, we don't call it tuxedo, but many people get that image where you have half of the fish being black and the other half being the same color as the tail. That would be the half black class. And then the tail color would also be involved in the name. So we have things like half black red or half black green or half black blue or half black pastel. Um, those would be names of other kind of classes. Then we also have different pattern classes. Some fish are like... Like a snakeskin, right? That's one of the pattern classes? Right. Okay. And that's one of the ones I raise. I love snakeskins. Um, then we also have different body patterns, like the bronze-colored fish, which are like a gold color with a brown or dark, almost black edging on the scales. But then we do have some other tail shapes. We have sword tails, and sword tails could be just a lower sword tail or a double or an upper sword tail, or they can be a double sword tail. This year we have a probationary class. It doesn't, and all of this is for points. It's really, when you think about the IFGA shows, this is all a big competition and the competition begins each year at our October annual and we get our prizes then the following annual the next October, but we're all competing for points. But um, each of these classes earns points for you. But the probationary classes, they're not for points. We're just checking to see if there's enough interest to keep having them. But right now we have a probationary class for the wide tail. And right now wide tail guppies are pretty popular when you think about all the people who are going for the when you hear about Dumbo guppies, I would call a Dumbo guppy a wide tail. Oh, it, so I think of Dumbo and I think of the Dumbo ears, or am I thinking of it in a different context? Well, the Dumbo ears, the ears are their pec, pec or pectoral fins, and the pectoral fins, they don't count for or against anything in the IFGA standards. I love that. I love the ears or the pecs on them. I think that's adorable. Is it, but are they their own class at count. least? No, no, it's not. They're, they're not part of the standards. But when you look at the tail end or what we call the caudal fin, if you look at the shape of that fin, and it, it doesn't perfectly fit into our wide tail class, but it's getting close. Um, people are entering them into the wide tail class. It's beyond the 70 degree angle that would allow it to fit into the delta tail class. For it to be a delta tail, it has to be between 70 degrees and I believe 55 degrees. Well, and the tail on those dumbos is too, it's too big of an angle. How so, how how so we're we're, th we're throwing out angles of tails now. So how precise uh, are we getting? Precise. Oh man, very, so very 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 precise. So I can already picture like some <laughs> real heated confrontations of of you know oh, judges yeah. being like, no no man, your tail is too wide of an angle, and people flipping out because they want to enter one category and they get put in another. Uh, fish get disqualified on a regular basis. Um, you have to, the the standards are very precise when it comes to being in a particular class and w when you win a particular class your fish has met the standard we have very strict rules um it it's not like you can just well i was going to say it's not like you could just pick out a fish at a pet store and bring it in and enter it in our show but you definitely can't do that because in order to enter a fish in one of our shows, you have to have been the person to have bred the fish. That's one of the things about being, I'm going to say a contestant, but a breeder in our shows is you have to have been the breeder. I know different types of shows, like you can buy the fish and then show it in competitions, but in a guppy show, you have to have been the breeder of that fish. 
And I, I know people joke around all the time that like anybody can raise guppies. And I guess because of that, well, you have to have bred the guppy in order to show the guppy. It's really not fair to buy no, the guppy. That, no, that makes that, that makes complete sense. And you know, yeah. I, I haven't had any guests on where at least let me let me think back here in the forty seven some odd episodes I've done. Uh, I'm trying to think. So we've talked about shrimp competitions, but I don't think I've yeah, talked to you. Shrimp should breed too. Yeah, I, I would. Th- <laughs> I would think so. So I don't know the rules around the shrimp competition, but I would think any even cichlid competitions for American Cichlid Association or killifish. I would like to think that a rule, a very simple rule, would be that if you enter this fish, it should have been one that you bred and not one that you just paid, you know, twenty thousand dollars to bring it over from, you know, a Southeast Asian, you know, specialized breeder or something of that nature. That's just me. That's just my opinion. Yeah. But, yeah. <laughs> but I, no, I, really, I, I would, I would, I would too. completely support that. And you know, the the IFGA's rules, like you need to have rules in place. Things need to be black and white. Um, so I fully support that. I guess where I didn't think. And maybe I just didn't think about it, but having, you know, a 55 to 70 degree angle for a tail, like that just seems like the rule makes sense. Don't get me wrong. We have to have our categories for tails, but it's like, wow, like that's serious. Yeah. And if you go below the 55 degrees, then you're into a veil tail, which is another category that we have. I feel like the only one I'd be able to really spot be like, yep, that's a sword tail. Like that's a one single sword tail. (laughs) I got, I got that one down. And that's why I'm still not a judge, though. Well, I actually know the angles and stuff, but to to become a judge in the IFGA, there's years of training that goes into this. <laughs> I have been trying for years now. There, there's exams that we take, both visual and written. We study... Yeah, so the, I mean, that's a, you know, Sherry, you just set me up for, I love it when guests do the segue for me. It's so awesome. So becoming an IFGA judge, like that is, so it's it's always one thing to, to organize an event or a competition and have people participate, um, you know, whether it's f- uh, putting up money or finding a venue, but then, you know, this extra layer, this extra burden where you have to have people who aren't going to enter, I don't know, maybe, maybe a judge can't enter, I don't know, there's probably some conflict of interest there, you probably well, just, Maybe you can't, you just can't judge your own category. Is that right? Okay. You can't judge your own category and you cannot judge fish that you brought to the show. So if you brought fish to the show for a friend, I, I think even if they traveled with you, you're not supposed to judge them. So that, that makes complete sense. But yeah. then even then to still, so then you still need a, a good number of judges to then you, even yeah. have the event. And now you're telling me that this is like, this is a pretty strict process. Like you really need to know your stuff. So what, like, what does it take to become an IFGA judge? There, there's some pretty strict requirements. Every year at the annual, we have a, ju- a judging seminar, and all judges are pretty much expected to attend the judging seminar to be kept updated on the rules, like to keep their judging skills refreshed. You're also expected to attend at least one show every, at least once a year you're expected to judge. Um, that requirement has been lowered in the past. It used to be that you had to judge a couple of shows a year, but it's getting more and more difficult for people. Like there's not as many shows as there used to be, but um, people do try to judge more than that because people need judges at their shows but um when you're at the show you're judging for hours with teams of other judges and that helps keep you up on your skills but most of the judges because there's not that many most of the judges do go to at least two or three shows a year if there's some of them i think that go to even more than that um most guppy people travel to a number of shows each year and help out at the shows we go and help set up shows and judge at the shows and help tape them down and yeah that's that's a whole other that's like the that's like the upper echelon of fish nerd like i'm a i am an ifga sanctioned and approved judge like you you've put in a lot of time and you're going to put in even more time to hit that level of fish nerddom so that's really cool too the guppy people really put in a lot of time and effort (laughs) they they do a lot to try to keep it going yeah, absolutely. And so, um, I, I guess in your experience of, of showing guppies, um, do you have any memorable experiences of you showing guppies? Um, not 
really. I, I'm just really getting started with the showing of the guppies. I spend a lot more time trying to make sure that everything's going okay with the show. Uh, I think I'm better at helping plan the shows than actually showing the fish at this point. Like I, I'm working on the fish part. <laughs> no, no, no worries. <laughs> hey, no, no worries at all. You know, we don't always have to. We don't always have to be like the, the you know, that the the peak of the game. Um, you know, so that's there's there's nothing wrong with that. The competition's pretty fierce at this point. I'm running around making sure that everybody at the show is happy and has their name tag on and has been registered, and I'm entering the data and that the judges have their paperwork ready to go. And in how many days typically would a, a guppy show does it span? Um, they're usually taking place over three days. Um, we have the first day of setting up everything because, like I said, we usually have our, at least about 400 entries. So a good portion of our fish are being shipped in. So we're receiving the fish. We're entering them in the computer. We're getting them put on the bench. And there's a lot of paperwork involved in that. And we have to... There's a mountain of stickers that we have to have ready before that because we have stickers on the bowls. And there's a lot of things that go into running that whole operation and judging cards that have to be made up. And there's a lot that goes into running the show. And then on the show day, we have to organize who's doing the judging. And as they're going around judging, then we have to enter the data into the program to make sure that everything gets tabulated correctly and we know who the right winners are at the end of the day and the right awards go out and then we always follow it up the next day with an auction and breaking down the show at the same time so it's always at least a three-day process and if it's an annual we have an extra day in there with some seminars and a banquet included in it oh very nice and and so while the guppy show is going on um, I've heard of other fish conventions where there's kind of not wheeling, not wheeling and dealing, but people will bring fish to sell and they'll have their room set up as kind of quasi fish stores. Does anything like that go on at, at an IG, IFGA guppy show or is that something that's kind of frowned upon? That's kind of frowned upon because we do have the auction. Oh, that makes sense. Okay. Yeah. I, I guess there's always going to be a little bit of it like because everybody's friends, like, they're all friends, we all know each other, so it might be, and you don't see each other, except the last show, which was a couple months ago, so it might be the kind of thing that, hey, bring me a couple of these, but there's not going to be... Yeah, no, that's a, that's a very good it. distinction, right, between a between a show and between, like, a convention, because I know with the shrimp competition, there was, there was some shenanigans that had happened, and, um, you know, wanting to auction off um, the, the shrimp at the end of it, which helps support the organization. And maybe, maybe kind of the same thing happens with the guppy show then. Yeah. It, it, it doesn't seem quite the same as a convention. I would like to see them in the future become a little bigger than they are. Like we do have seminars, but they're more geared towards people who are already involved in the IFGA and in the few, I would love to see them have more speakers that are open more towards bringing new people in, but maybe in the future. Mm -hmm. Do you tend maybe. to find that like the general public will find out about these events? Maybe it's advertised in the newspaper and you'll get people coming that just needed something to do on the weekend? Or is it pretty much like you have to know that this thing's going down to show up? You kind of have to know. We do advertise, but... Um, Maybe not as much as we should. We do we do some on Facebook. We do some in the. Well, I know what I do when it's in our area, but um, it's usually like in the NEC newsletter type thing and through local clubs. But it's like you have to be already in the fishy world we, kind of to. We just gotta know. find it. We just gotta find out who's popular on Instagram right now and somehow make it seem like they're gonna show up. Like. I don't know. Justin Bieber is probably no longer relevant, but be like, man, Justin Bieber is showing up to this IFGA thing. This is going to be, this is the hotness. Everybody needs to show up. I know, no, we need to find one of the YouTube guys. That's the way to do it. No, but not a, not a fish YouTube person. We need to get like a pop culture person and just have all of these young people <laughs> descend upon the IFGA convention. So if you've got like a thousand kids show up because they think they're going to see Justin Bieber, if we've got like a 1% conversion and turn some people into fancy guppies, that's not a bad return. I'd, yeah. be, I'd be happy with that. <laughs> <laughs> I know. We really do need a way to get, like, more younger folk 
there. Maybe not. Maybe not in my way, where we're uh, manipulating and lying about who's going to show up. But no, no, I'm always looking for ways to get new people into the hobby. Uh, I know. And, and so, and so, in one, well, maybe not one of those ways, but I, I think talking about, um, you know, the work that you've done with fish clubs, and in particular the Pennsylvania Guppy Club. So, you know, you and some other members um, are working towards and have started a guppy club in your area. So, why don't you talk about that experience? Well, the PA Guppy Club is a new club. We just started in September, which was right before the last IFGA annual, which means that we are an official IFGA club. We were officially approved by them in October, and we are also a official NEC or Northeast Council of Aquarium Society club as well. But um, we're a small club, but we are growing. We just had our second meeting a couple of days ago, and we're getting a few new members we have a facebook group and a facebook page and a new website all of these things are brand new but um i'm hoping for more and more members on all three of them we plan on having meetings at least for the first year every other month as we get more participation maybe we'll go to an every month situation but for now and i kind of think maybe forever because I like it this way but for now what we're doing is meeting in our homes and the reason I like that is because you get to see people's actual fish rooms I've been a part of many clubs where we meet in places like fire halls and that has its benefits too because you can fit a few more people in there and you have a place if you want to have an auction but um I like the meeting in a home because you get to see how different people handle their fish setups. I love seeing different water change systems and different air systems and their actual tanks. And I also like that it takes a different amount of time to get to the meeting each time because like Pennsylvania is a pretty big location and we had our first meeting at Steve Mutzel's house. He's our president and that was in York, PA. And York is kind of in the center of the state. And then we had our second meeting at my house, and I'm in Levittown, and Levittown's kind of near Philadelphia, so that's all the way here on the east coast, uh, eastern side of Pennsylvania. And I don't know where our third meeting's going to be yet, but um, I'm hoping it's somewhere else. Not that I don't mind having it at my house, but um, I'm hoping that it's in a different location so that we, first of all, see somebody else's fish room, but so that people who maybe my place was far for them, maybe the next time it's not so far. If ever, so, if ever somebody needed a little motivation to do some tank maintenance, have some people come oh, over yeah. to look, have some people come over to look at your fish room. Oh man, I just had, uh, so working at the, co- the co-op now, Robert, who, you know, he and I are, are becoming buds because we're coworkers. And so he's our, our general manager of an aquarium co-op. He came over to the house and checked out the fish room. And, you know, sure enough, I hit the algae scraper and algae scrubber on every single one of my tanks. And, you know, I definitely trimmed up some plants in some of the, in my display tanks. And, you know, so if you, if you need that motivation, volunteer your place, volunteer your place for a fish club meeting, uh, or have some fish nerd friends come over and you will definitely be motivated to maintain your tanks. It does work. It does work. But, um, I'm hoping that we find some more, uh, people in Pennsylvania who are really into their guppies. I know many of the guys want this to be like serious hardcore IFGA, but I also see room for people who just love their guppies. I um, I want to show guppies and be an IFGA judge, but I have way too many tanks of Endlers, and I also have other live bears that aren't even guppies. It's like I, I like live bears in general, and... I think there's lots of people like that in Pennsylvania. And we also have, at this point, we're getting just as many members who aren't quite living here in Pennsylvania. We have some members, well, from Maryland and from New Jersey and New York and even one in Texas. Um, So even though we're calling ourselves the PA Guppy Club, if you have friends in PA or just like us, you can join us too. Maybe someday, even though I don't know how to do like a live cast type thing, I think I might learn someday. I don't like to show my face. I don't know why. But um, 
we're going to learn how to do that so that if you don't want to make the five-hour drive across the state, that you could still join us. We'll learn how to do that someday. We we just need some kids to join us. Yeah, so. I, th I think the idea of, you know, bridging and having technology uh, help fish clubs, you know, to, to carry meetings and have remote members and have them be an active participant in the fish club. Well, as active as you can be, you know, on like a Skype conference call, if you will. I, th I think there's there, there should be some room for that. Um, that we yeah. can start incorporating those kinds of things. Because even, even in my area, I live, you know, 45 minutes from, 30 to 45 minutes with no traffic from where my fish club, the Seattle Aquarium Society, meets. And with traffic, that could be an hour and a half, you know, if, if, if really bad, it's an hour and 45 minutes. And that alone could be like, ah, I guess I won't make this club meeting. Um, but if we had a way to, you know, engage with each other through you know, still have the club meeting, but maybe have it on Skype. And I know that um, Eric Olson does a fantastic job of recording and making it available for members. Uh, you know, that that's that's exceptional, and it's great that we do that. But, you know, maybe, I don't know, maybe there is room for, for having some type of a live um, interaction. I know. I really want to figure out how to do that. I've seen a couple of clubs who are working on it, and I want to work on that, too. I want to just get as many people involved as possible i would totally join one of your guys's uh live stream calls if you guys are doing a fish club meeting that'd be awesome oh cool good well we will invite you when we try it maybe <laughs> a march meeting yeah awesome and, and so any any outside of the box so you know you've talked about how maybe some members are like yeah we want this to be hardcore ifga like we want to focus and you know not fight club, but we want everybody to be like really <laughs> well, well we trained do. and, you know, we want the best guppies. well, yeah, like we want the best guppies and we want to encourage each member to produce the best guppies. Right. So we're, we're encouraging each other's to have really high IFG or to, to hold to a really high IFGA standard. But at the same time, like it almost feels like there, there should be room for, you know, Hey, let's, Maybe it's sacrilegious, but maybe we set up a nice little booth at like the local PetSmart or Petco and just, you know, let people in the general public that wander through a PetSmart or Petco on, on a given weekend see these fancy guppies just like you did at um, Aquatic Experience. Like maybe, you know, maybe maybe that gets some, some people that were, you know, maybe they have a guppy tank. Um, and that pushes them over the edge and they now realize that, oh, my God, like there's this whole world of fancy guppies just like the experience that you had. Right now, it's like I'd love to have them be able to see what guppies could really look like because you just don't get that when you go to a pet store. It's like I have some pretty nice pet stores around here, and they don't have guppies that look like the ones I see at clubs. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I definitely wonder if, uh, you know, how I feel like, I don't know, without maybe Scott Peets, maybe he's different. He was just on the podcast. But I feel like maybe some local stores, I wonder if they would be as receptive to that because then you would have these guppies in the store that people can't buy and look, you know, a thousand times better than what they're selling. And I feel like a PetSmart or Petco might be more receptive to that. I don't yeah. know. I don't um, know. I'll, well, I'll, I'll let you I, explore that option if you think it's a good idea or not. <laughs> I just want to try to keep on going to things like aquatic experience and showing up with guppies and get yeah. everywhere I can like that. Yeah, so will Pennsylvania uh, Guppy Club be at 2019 aquatic experience i'm gonna try i'm also gonna be at the nec convention with guppies we're gonna have a little guppy exhibition show up there as well oh yeah. very, very nice and when is uh, when's that nec convention that is april 12th through 14th that is in cromwell connecticut and people could enter that one as well there's online registration for that at the northeastcouncil.org but um, we will have some of our IFGA guppies there. But we also we have a class at that show that isn't in the normal IFGA show. We have an any other shape class there. So any guppy that you love, you can enter in our show. Huh. That sounds like a lot of fun. Yes. Um, that's a class that – actually, it's a class that I'm pushing for in all guppy shows. But um, – because there's so many beautiful guppies. But um, that will be in April, the weekend before Easter. And registration for that convention is open right now. If you northeastcouncil.org. So I'll make sure that uh, 
as we wrap up this episode. So any, so we'll do the any council. I'll have a link to that. Um, I'll make sure I have a link to the Pennsylvania Guppy Club. You guys have a website and a Facebook page. Yes. If I'm correct. Uh, I'll throw a link into IFGA. So people listening to this, if they want to see, you know, just how hardcore you can get into guppies, we'll, we'll have a link to that as well. And and if I remember, which I should because I'll put a star next to this on my notes, uh, Trout in the Classroom. So we'll uh, I'll see okay. if I can find the Pennsylvania link to that or if there's... I'll send it to you. Awesome. There we go. So Sherry, thank you very much for coming on and talking about your experiences in the hobby and all about fancy guppies and, you know, the super cool program of Trout in the Classroom. So you are certainly doing your part for the tropical fish community, but also just to, to foster that appreciation for nature and, and aquatic animals and, and, you know, the, the youth um, in your area. So, you know, thank you very much for taking time out, Sherry. I really appreciate it. 